Mark chapter number 10 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be reading verses number 13 through 31. Mark 10, 13 to 31. These verses contain really two episodes that on the surface may seem completely unrelated. But Mark has placed them here in sequence for a reason that I think will become, by God's grace, will become obvious as we go along. So, beginning at verse number 13, we read this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Verse 17, And as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, notice he dropped the good at this point. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus said, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Verse 22, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Again, children. Note that word. Children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and have followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is, one, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold 
Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Remember, that was the original question. How do we get to eternal life? Verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. God, we ask your blessing upon your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible, and sufficient word. Use it to save sinners this morning, to draw wandering saints back to closeness and fellowship with you, to strengthen our... To, Lord, use this word this morning to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder how many I wonder how many of you this morning have ever heard the phrase life is full of questions. You ever heard that? Raise your hand. Life is full of questions. Maybe you've added some of those questions to it. Well, one of the most amazing things about Jesus in the Gospels is how he responded to questions. Sometimes he responded to a question with a question. He did here, didn't he? Sometimes he responds to a question with a question. Other times it was more direct, and sometimes he didn't really even answer the question at all. But Jesus was always being confronted and questioned about something. In the Gospel of Mark alone, he is asked 39 different questions. In 16 chapters, you do the math. Truly, life is full of questions. But none so important as the one asked by this young man here today in our passage, verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is no more eternally significant question than this. And it really it presupposes one larger reality, that there is a holy God against whom we have sinned and a judgment that we need to be saved from. And the real underlying question is this, can we save ourselves or must someone else act to save us? And this passage here, remember I told you it was two sort of unrelated incidents? No, they're not. Mark is just not writing down things as they happened. There is a narrative unfolding before us this morning, and he's showing us two radically different ways to answer that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want to I sort of unfold this before us this morning with three main headings. They're in your bulletin on your, your handout. The first is that Jesus calls us to come to Him in simple faith. He calls us to Himself in simple faith. In, in verses 13 through 16, the first episode of this passage, we see children who are being brought 
presumably by their parents, to Jesus for a blessing. And in his parallel account, Luke even indicates that some of these children were infants. They were babies. But the disciples, for whatever reason, who knows what was going through their head, (laughs) they rebuked these parents, these people bringing these children. And verse 14 says that Jesus was what? Indignant. It's not the first time in Mark he's been angry. And Mark never softens the emotions of Jesus. Jesus was angry with his disciples because they were keeping those who needed him most away from him. And he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Don't be a stumbling block. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And you know, we've already seen Jesus use children as illustrations, right? As, as more times actually than probably I've used my own children as illustrations. They don't really appreciate that much. But Jesus, if he did it, I think I can do it. Jesus used used children as an illustration of what? Of what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God. Of what it looks like to believe. And he reminds his disciples of that truth in verse number 15. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The door is shut to you, friends. He's saying, if you do not come to, to, come to me, come to the kingdom of God like one of these children whose parents are bringing them to me now. Now, he's not teaching that children are automatically saved here. He's not teaching that children are automatically in the kingdom of God. This has absolutely nothing to do with baptizing babies. He's teaching that children typify the kind of, they model, they illustrate for us, the kind of dependence, the kind of humility, the kind of simple faith that we must have when we approach the Lord Jesus. You see, only the parents who recognize their need for Christ and their children's need for Christ were here pushing through the crowd to get their children to Jesus. They recognized their need. They didn't have all the answers about Him. They didn't know. They just knew that there was something unusually special about this Galilean rabbi and they wanted his blessing upon their children. And that's exactly what they got, isn't it? In verse number 16, Jesus took them in his arms and he blessed them laying his hands on them. See, he wasn't afraid to touch people to get close to people, even children with all their nasty germs. Right? 
the tenderness and the love of Jesus for children in particular. But what do they represent? More than just their age. They represent dependence, reliance, powerlessness, insignificance. Jesus loves that. He loves anyone who comes to Him like that. And it's on full display here. You know, I imagine the the scenario. I imagine Jesus smiling, laughing, maybe even tossing these little ones in the air like a father does his children. Tickling them even until they burst with explosive, ear-piercing laughter that only little children can produce. Meanwhile, their parents look on with smiling faces, unbeknownst to them that the sovereign creator and sustainer of the very universe held their babies in his arms. What a sweet, what a happy moment in these final months of the life of Jesus here on earth. Remember, he's only probably got five, six at most months left. But I wonder, friends, do we approach Jesus, you and I, do we come to Jesus with this kind of dependence? Like these kids, like these parents who brought their kids with this kind of desire for His touch, for His blessing, or, or you know, do we believe His Word, right? That's, that's where it's really at. Do we believe His Word simply because it is His Word and trust Him like a child implicitly trusts His parents? Do we do that? Or do we constantly question Do we want to get a background check on Jesus before we let Him into our lives? Well, friends, this is how He calls us to Himself. And He receives everyone who will come to Him in humble dependence and faith. Secondly, in this passage, we see that Jesus calls us to abandon our idols. He calls us to abandon our idols and now having seen what simple childlike faith looks like, Mark will show us a young man who approaches Christ in an altogether different way. Look at verse number 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, where is he going now? He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. Remember, this is near the end. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is the historic account of the rich young ruler. Matthew tells us that he was young. You know, we've gone over this before. There are synoptic gospels. They each tell the same story from different perspectives. Matthew tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler of something. Perhaps he sat on a council. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that he was rich. 
So that's where we get the phrase, rich, young ruler. And at first glance, he seems sincere, doesn't he? He runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees before him, and essentially he asks this, Lord, what must I do? How can I be saved? But Jesus sees beyond our externals. He sees deep into our hearts, and his response immediately indicates that something wasn't right with this young man. Verse number 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now this this verse has caused all sorts of confusion throughout church history. The way he the way Jesus worded his question and what is he doing here? He's answering a question What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's answering a question with a what? A question. Why do you call me good? The way he's worded this question has confused many Christians into thinking that somehow Jesus was denying his actual goodness, that he was actually good. When in fact what he was doing was challenging this young man's notion of goodness and at the same time affirming his own deity. He essentially said, wait a minute, only God is good, yet you call me good. Do you believe that I am God? Do you believe that I am divine? Are you ready to make that kind of Profession and confession? But he wasn't. He didn't, in fact. He believed that he was actually good. Look at verse number 19. Jesus said this, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And then he, the the young man, said to Jesus, uh, But teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Oh, friends, we are to be shocked right now. What a remarkably self-righteous thing to say to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have always kept these commandments. But you see what Jesus is doing here, don't you? He is using the law, the mirror, the divine mirror. He's using the law of God to expose this man's self-righteousness. You think you're righteous? Read the law. Not some external surface level keeping of it. Get to the heart of it. He had, as one commentator commentator said, he had morals and manners, but he did not have true righteousness. 
Oh, friends, how many cultural Christians today have morals and manners? They're pro-life. They're pro-America. They're pro-Israel. They have all of that. But they don't have true righteousness. Why did this young man not have true righteousness? Because he was full of his own self-righteousness. He thought that he was good. Jesus is about to expose that. Look at verse number 21. And Jesus, I love this. Looking at him. Oh, the, the, the soul-piercing gaze of the Son of God. Looking at him. He loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything. Sell all that you have. There it is. Sell all that you have. And give to the poor. He's not talking about some sort of social justice here. We'll we'll, we'll see it. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. You see, Jesus loved this young man to tell him the truth. I wonder this morning, brothers and sisters, do we love people? Do we love our sisters, our brothers, our children, our siblings, our parents, our family? Do we love our neighbors enough to tell them the truth? Or do we just stay silent because we don't want the controversy? Friends, that's not love. Not the way Jesus loves. Love demands truth. And Jesus loved this young man enough to cut past his external righteousness and get to the true idol of his heart, which was what? Money. This young man, Mark says in verse, I think, 22, says he had great possessions, had wealth, and wealth was his true God. Jesus called him to give it up. But notice, not because, not because it was sinful for him to be wealthy. Let's not make that wrong conclusion. Not because it was sinful for him to be wealthy, but because it was sinful for him to value his earthly treasure above obedience to Christ, who called him to give it all away and follow him. But the young man was unwilling. Look at verse number 22. Perhaps one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Disheartened by this saying, he went away Sorrowful, because he had, for he had great possessions. The man walked away from, the man walked away bankrupt, though he was rich. 
as righteous as this young man believed that he was, Jesus exposed his sin by identifying the one thing that he was unwilling to give up to follow Christ. You see, friends, wealth is uniquely dangerous because it cloaks our deep spiritual need with the security of temporal, material comforts. That's why it's dangerous. We read it this morning when Paul told Timothy, who is one of the pastors, one of the elders at the church of Ephesus, charge those who are rich in this world. And Jesus two times says in the next two verses how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He said, As it, is, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Does everyone understand what that is? Young people, the children, that eye of the needle is that little, correct me if I'm wrong, that little hole that you're supposed to thread the thread through. I've never been able to do it. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to go into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to fit through that eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I did not say that, friends. The Lord Jesus wrote those words by the inspiration of His Spirit. But you know what? You don't have to be rich for riches to be your idol, do you? See, whatever drives the daily focus of your heart and life, that is your idol. What motivates you to live? That's your idol. Is it pleasure? Is it comfort? Is it work? Popularity at school? Is it family? You see, we can turn good things into... All all of that is good. We can turn good things into idols, can't we? We do all the time. In fact, I would dare say that most people who sit within the four walls and the roof of an average sanctuary on a Sunday morning have turned good things, good gifts from God into idols, including myself. But you see, friends, Jesus wants all that we have, all that we love. It's not enough to give Him just a little bit on Sunday morning. It's not enough to toss up that token prayer during the week. He wants all of us. And if that seems radical, it's because genuine biblical Christianity is radical and it will always be at odds with the cultural Christianity of our day that demands little and promises ease John MacArthur says this anybody will accept a Jesus who gives you all that you want that's not a hard sale 
How about the Jesus who takes everything that you have? Try that. So the disciples, in verse 26, they asked a question of their own. And it shows that they had been deeply influenced by a very common belief in Judaism at the time, and even in our day perhaps, that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. You've seen the preachers on TV. (laughs) Gone over that too many times to go to it again. They think that wealth is a sign of God's blessing, and then so... Peter says to them, verse 26, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus, if this rich man with great wealth, who's coming to you with the appearance of with, with sincerity, he, he's on his knees, how can I be saved? And you says, wait a minute, you need, to, you need to go sell all that you have. And he's like, I'm not willing to do that. And then his disciples say, well, well who can be saved then, Lord? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them. Oh, friends, please don't miss the the little words in these passages that Mark gives us. Jesus looked, once again, the piercing gaze of God's Son into their souls. And He says, wait a minute, with man it is impossible what I'm describing. A camel can't go through an eye of a needle. This is impossible with man, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So Jesus is saying, yes, it is possible actually for a rich man to be saved, but he's got to approach me the right way. Not coming to me, trusting in his own goodness, saying, but I have kept all these from my youth. Friend, there is no sin in being rich. I... I, I don't think we have any rich. Do we have any? Is anybody rich? If you are, I'm, I'm, I'm going home with you today. But there is no sin in being wealthy. There is no sin in rightly ordered pleasure. Pleasure is a gift from God. God's, God he has given us a, a body that senses and can feel and experience the tangible sense of, of goodness and pleasure. There is, no sense, there, there is no sin in material comfort. The sin comes when we pursue these things and their pursuit of them drives our lives. That's the sin of it. And when we are unwilling to give it up, if Jesus were to ask for it, no matter what it is, And so this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit, even at this moment, would reveal to each one of us the idols of our hearts and grant us this morning repentance and grace to abandon, to abandon them in full obedience to Christ. Very quickly, last, third third main heading, third point. Jesus calls us to know the blessing of sacrifice. So thus far in this passage of seemingly unrelated episodes, we've watched children come to Jesus in simple faith and be blessed. And we've also seen a rich man come to Jesus and not be blessed. He has walked away disheartened and sad. 
And now, in verse 28, we get to see how the disciples respond to, every, to everything that's happened. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Peter began to say to him, uh, See, we have left everything and followed you. We've left it all, Lord, and followed you. So, from my perspective, it looks like Peter is almost sort of having a heart problem of his, of his own here, isn't he? I mean, if it's impossible for the rich to get into heaven, then what kind of reward must be waiting for Peter and the disciples who had sacrificed everything that, that they had? They left it all to follow him. That doesn't mean that, you know, they were fishermen. And all, yeah. They didn't literally walk out on their families. That's not what he's saying. It's a, this is an issue of priority. What are the priorities of our hearts? Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. You're number one for us. So what kind of reward are we going to get? And I think we can identify with Peter here, can't we? I mean, if we're completely honest. Don't we sometimes think, you know, I've spent my entire life living for Christ, and what has it got me? Where am I at? I see my I see my my peers from high school, you know, in Facebook. You see all these, you know, these these uh, high school groups that are doing these reunions and conventions and stuff. And you you go to these. I mean, I've never been to one, but you know, I'm just you know, hypothetically speaking, I honestly couldn't care less what my high school peers are doing. But uh, besides, for me to pray for them and 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 share the gospel with them, but. We get these ideas that we see people who are our age and you know, they're, they're way further along in life than we are. But we've given everything for Jesus. And they don't give a rip about Jesus. So what's our reward? We may not say those exact words, but oh, how that sentiment sort of lies in our hearts. Sometimes it lies dormant. And it expresses itself as the sin of envy. It's there. Maybe you didn't get a promotion at work because your boss doesn't like Christians. Or you had to make, you had to make a great sacrifice because of the convictions of your faith. And friends, make no mistake... May I say this morning, in a very uncontroversial and, and very graceful way, that I think we're going to be seeing more and more of this kind of stuff in the coming days as our godless government... Did I say it wasn't going to be controversial? That's a lie. As our godless government continues to gain power and wield it over those who refuse to comply with all of their silly mandates. We're going to see, we're seeing it all the time right now. I know people personally who have lost their jobs, who have had to walk away from entire professions, entire careers over their conviction about the freedom of conscience in America. It's going to get worse. But whatever we lose, whatever we give up, will it be worth it? That's what Peter's saying. 
And look at how Jesus answers in verse 29. Truly, I say to you, brothers and sisters, when you see the Lord Jesus Christ, say truly, He wants to get your attention. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father. Think of... Think of our Muslim brothers and sisters who have literally lost their families because they converted to Christ. That's where, the, 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 that's where it gets hardcore, doesn't it? For my sake and for the gospel, verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with pers- with persecutions. Don't 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 cut that out. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Friends, I want to tell you this morning. Yes, it is worth it. Now, whatever you have to give up. If it's a job, if it's a relationship, if it's you got to walk away from your family. Whatever you have to give up, it will be worth it now. It is worth it now. It will be worth it then. And the blessings that Christ returns to His people, guess what? What He's saying here? They will actually come through His people. Those who lose their family for Christ will find a new family in Christ. Those who lose possessions for the sake of Christ will gain brothers and sisters in Christ who willingly and gladly share anything that they have. And guess what? This is precisely what we see in the early church, isn't it? Acts chapter 5 verse 32 says this, Now the full number of, in other words, everyone, every one of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. They were going to share it all. You need a bed to sleep tonight? Crash at my house. Right? You need something to eat? Let me, let me open my cabinets to you. That's what they're saying. It's what this is about. This is not some sort of Prosperity gospel promise. Whatever you lose here on earth, you're going to gain in Christ here on earth. And in the life to come, eternal life. Whatever we lose for the sake of the gospel, we gain because of the gospel. But there may be some here today wondering whether it's worth it or watching. Maybe someone's watching and you wonder whether it's worth it. Friend, if that's you, draw strength from these verses. There may be some here or watching online who still treasure their idols over obedience. Friends, Christ will not be satisfied with anything less than total allegiance. He wants it all, and i got news for you. He's worth it all. And He's not asking us to do anything that He hasn't already done for us. The Creator King... (laughs) who left His eternal throne. His glory was concealed by human flesh. He lived the life that we could not live. He permitted Himself to be crucified by those who came to save. 
He satisfied the hot wrath of a holy God. And he was then raised back to life so that everyone, all who would believe on him, might inherit what this young man sought and what Jesus Christ alone merited in his goodness and in his righteousness, eternal life. Friends, I urge you this morning, however God has spoken to you through this passage, respond. Respond. Right now, where you're at, respond in repentance and faith and find your greatest treasure in Christ alone. Let's pray.